we have to be able to take a look at behavior and we need people in place that can recognize is this volitional is is this like an intent an evil like like person who is antisocial and ready to kill someone or is the behavior non-volitional and stemming from mental illness or addiction the frontal lobe is now impaired because of poor choices that have caused them to derail and the poor choices unraveled their life are you ready for another inspiring episode of the knocking doors down podcast your host jason lachance here through my struggles with addiction depression and anxiety i developed a passion for speaking with those who turn their greatest adversities into their greatest advantages and finding purpose speaking of purpose how about a lifestyle brand with purpose 5150 ltm that's right not only is it a lifestyle brand that can fit whatever it is you're trying to achieve in life but they give back to the community and you the listener of knocking doors down get 20 percent off every time you shop at 5150 ltm all you have to do is use the code kdd20 at checkout and get 20 percent off and how does 5150 give back to the community portions of the sales benefit the carlos Vieira foundation their three amazing programs the race to end the stigma the race for autism and the race to be drug free more on the carlos Vieira foundation go to carlosvierafoundation.org and my incredible guest eric fong is nothing short of phenomenal eric is one of the highest achieving attorneys in the united states not only has he had constitutional rights cases that he's been able to settle, he also represented the iconic George Clinton. Yes, that one, P-Funk himself, in the largest copyright case in American history and won. But through it all, Eric was struggling with addiction. He shares his story how he was drinking himself to death, smoking weed constantly, and was unable to manage stuff around him. Eric is still rebuilding his life, including the relationships with his children. He's incredibly vulnerable, awesomely open. I'm excited to share this episode with Eric Fong. Hey, Eric, where I like to start off, um, gratitude. Three things you're grateful for today. I love it. I love that. It physically changes the mind when you when you have that as a habit physically changes the mind you can see it on mris i've asked people that same question and they can't come up with anything hmm were they teenagers <laughs> well you got to understand by the time someone's meeting me it's 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 some of the deepest most profound loss you can imagine true yeah um three things right now that i'm grateful for i've got a, a network of friends and family that i could fall back on when 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 I need help or are willing to just hang out with me, you know, because they we enjoy each other's company. Yeah. And so relationships, that's I'm profoundly grateful for that. I'm grateful for this planet, uh, Mother Earth that that gives us so much and that I can appreciate it and respect it and worry about it. Mm. And I'm grateful for um This life I have and to struggle with it and to be exhilarated by it. And that, of course, is um, a, a general answer. But just to be able to take a breath of air right now with you, 
Ooh, gave me chills. But I, uh, you know, you said something right there that that like most people, I, I, I find, and what I found really great about recovery and being in that community is our like people. I don't know how else to classify it. Uh, tend to be grateful for the struggle, whereas so many aren't. And, and I still have a lot of work to do, but boy, Eric, I'm like, I'm seeing my mindset continue to change. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's it's in the crisis it's, and it's in the abyss or the bottom that you, you, you learn who you are and where you, you grow out of it. And so survivors of near-death experiences, cancer, addicts, you know, people that have been to the brink of just, there's not like, I'm going to die, you know, or I need to, I need to do something to live. If you make it through that journey, it, the profound shift in our, in our, for me, I'll describe it as a spiritual, like what what really matters is the spiritual shift of our essence just changes. It just, we are different people coming out of that. And it's why I, I can say, and I think most people would agree that in our on similar journeys is I'm so glad to be an addict, you know, like yeah. I am proud and glad that, that, that I'm an addict. Yeah. Let's, let's share some of your journey. I mean, I, for the intro people heard before they get to the nuts and bolts of you and I talking, I mean, it, you're an incredibly high performing attorney, which I have a friend in the Fresno area and she was telling me, you know, we were talking about trauma and of course she's talking about her clients, but she's like, there's a reason I call my law firm trauma law because I myself and so many of us endure it. And it kind of gave me a flashback like, wow, when I used to drink at the upscale people bar, a lot of it was people working in the legal systems, cops, attorneys, et cetera. Yeah. And I mean, daily. Daily. Yeah. Um, so first of all, I man, my heart goes out to police officers. Mm-hmm. Every time they walk up to a car, they genuinely can be afraid that they're gonna die. And they are they are in a they work in a job that this is my belief. I you know, I, I don't want to get political or anything, but I think that it's dishonest to the extent that we're we're punishing people who have mental illness, who have addictions. And the concept, right, of of this incarceration experiment that we're on is very unhealthy for the people who are trying to follow the law and, and be servants of the community because they're arresting the same people over and over again. The judges, the public defenders, the prosecutors, the, the corrections officers, they all know that the system isn't working. Mm-hmm. And so the the level, the stress and the life threatening situations that, that law enforcement are put into every day to, to genuinely carry out a function that we are told needs to be done to keep us safe, when in reality it makes us more dangerous. For me, this, like, again, I'm not getting political or anything here. For me, it breaks my heart because we as a when you teach a dog to come, you don't beat the crap out of it when it doesn't. You reward it when it does. Mm-hmm. And why we don't do that with each other is maddening. And so the stress, the trauma that that the people in this system go through is off the charts. And it goes for lawyers. 
we have some of the highest rates of addiction, if not the highest, and suicide, mm-hmm. you know, professions. What does that say? Like, like you want to trust your life and your legal affairs with a profession that is sick to the core? Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, how do I heard someone put it? Uh, another lawyer is like, "Yeah, we're operating on a lot of these systems from the '50s, '60s, and '70s when all those guys were high on cocaine, anyways." Well, you know the the you know think about it this way: the law is based on this principle called precedence. It's mm-hmm. what we do today has to be the way we did it yesterday. Mm-hmm. It, why are we what? Like we're bound by the past. And if we want to do something different, you lose. Yeah. So we were talking earlier in the prelude about imagination and um, like the unlimited capacity to have imagination and curiosity and to push the limits of what we're capable of doing. But we live in a world where it's status quo and how was it done in the past? And I got to keep doing it the way other people have done it. And the irony is that it kills our imagination. While you're checking knocking doors down out, don't forget to hit the subscribe button. And if you get a lot out of this podcast, share with a friend. And don't forget the archive of interviews we have. Bam Margera, Brandon Novak, Kat Von D, Charlie Sheen, Edward Furlong, Kelly Osborne. The list goes on and on of amazing guests that have been on the podcast sharing how they have found purposeful lives. I, I definitely have struggled in my sobriety to get back some of the imagination I had prior to my addiction really taking off. I've consciously found that struggle. Like, God, it's, did I, have I not reconnected the right synapse yet? Did I break something? Where, where, where is it at? You know? Hmm. Well, I, you know, um, well, we're all searching you know, like, and it never ends. And and if if we reach the point where we're not learning, you know, hopefully it's the end of a very long journey, and you're taking your last breath. Yeah. And it's in the struggle, right? It's it's in the journey and the struggles. It's not in the moment of where we are right now. And we all struggle with this intense desire to fulfill a, a purpose and meaning. Yeah. Sometimes we feel like we're not doing that. And I think perspective is really important, you know, when when we can question, you know, what's happening, especially when it just kind of feels like everything's unraveling around us in a bigger picture. This is these are scary times. There's a lot of things that are no longer making sense. And there's crises, you know, humanitarian, financial, environmental, economic. Like there's a lot of uncertainty in the world right now. And that has an impact on our psyche and our confidence. And so you're not alone, man. That's like, like it, it's not you. Right. Yeah. And and you're right. I mean, it is just in, in, an, in an abundance of areas where, I mean, we're just seeing it, you, you know, uh, working in this profession, you know, helping in the recovery and mental health communities. It is a lot of people, especially our young folks trying to get a grasp of it. I mean, you know, I, I'm 44, going to be 45. I think you're about the same age. I mean, you know, our young people are being faced with things that us adults and even us that are actively trying to develop new tools to mentally and emotionally handle situations couldn't handle. 
No, man, the world is so different and crazy. I, I was talking to my daughter and the school is initiating a policy with no phones in class, which mm-hmm. to me is like, duh, you know, like, can you imagine a classroom where everyone's <laughs> looking at their social media page while the teacher is teaching? Yes. In our younger generation, there's a lot of fear and a lot of anger. And of course, there's hopelessness mixed in there as well. And I think rightfully so, and it's entirely possible, we're going to have two people who are going to be in their 80s or pushing 80 as our president. Mm-hmm. Like, like, man, that makes me angry. <laughs> like we, need, we, we, need, we need someone in their 30s or 40s or 50s that is connected to a broader range of people instead of connected to the establishment of how they've been doing it for decades and are just plowing ahead with what I was talking about before, no lack of imagination, but how has it been done in the past? Yeah. And that, that should, this should be an outrage. Like, how is it we have a two party system that is pushing forward two people that are not connected to the vast majority of the population and the needs that are actually important to me, you know? Yeah, I don't know. I, even on a state level, I'm not sure how it is with you up there in Washington, but it's completely clueless, completely clueless, <laughs> you know, and I even there was a, oh, our our governor, and I don't get too political, too, except for the war on drugs, which <laughs> uh, we can laugh at that. I, you might have a lot of knowledge and insight that I don't have. But uh, I mean, when your governor literally says, Oh, I get, I get going home and hey, to watch the evening news, I got to numb out a little bit and have some wine or whatever. It's like and when you're making reference to the problems of, of just letting people shoot up on the street. Like, I mean, that's that's not humane. I mean, it's not humane to, as you and I know, this addiction thing. It, it's a mental health issue. Why aren't we treating it that way? Because it's not humane to throw them in, in a cell by themselves and just go, oh, well, if they die while they detox, oh, well. And it's not humane to leave them sitting out on the streets dying that way either. It's huge, man. It, the detox in, in this crisis we have is it's heartbreaking. And, and we were talking earlier about police officers and correction officers, and they're taking in good people who got sideways. And, and granted, there's a lot of people who are dangerous and whatever, but we have to be able to take a look at behavior and we need people in place that can recognize, is this volitional? Is is this like an intent, an evil like, like person who is antisocial and ready to kill someone? Or is the behavior non-volitional and stemming from mental illness or addiction? The frontal lobe is now impaired because of poor choices that have caused them to derail and the poor choices unraveled their life, right? And what we have, of course, is the vast majority of our resources. If you go pull up the budget of any city in this country and you look at what we're allocating to this system of police, jails, prosecutors, public defenders, judges, probation officers, corrections officers, man, it's like it's like it's consuming all of our money. And then the other part goes to you know, the aircraft carrier that I'm looking at across the way and, you know, warplanes and what ha- and we're not spending money on on compassion and education and and how can we work together to evolve and be better people? Yeah. We, we have completely crossed the line to the point where a Republican 
or a Democrat will look at the Republican and the Republican will look at the Democrat and you would swear that the other side is like anti-Christ, anti-American, hell-bent on destroying the world, when actually we're all in this together trying to work together to make the world a better place. Like we don't need to be fighting each other. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know about you, but I think it's just a good way they keep getting reelected and that have a job and special interest money coming in. And I mean, it's it's two sides of the same coin, really, the way it is now in my perception, you know, and I, I'm just, um, yeah. I, I yeah, if we don't any, want to get political, man. I know, If it, but I'm going to finish here. If anything over the last three years taught me, I have no trust, no trust in any of them. I just don't. It's just yeah, gone, and it sucks. Uh, well, we we could dig down the the joke that is the war on drugs, but I'd like to know more about you. Um, kind of tell me about little Eric. I'm I'm just fascinated. I mean, you know, you were ranked as one of the top five super lawyers in, in America, and high performing, and everything else. And it's just, um, yeah, I, I'm just curious. I think that's something, you know, I, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in a small firm and paralegal, one other lawyer, we all work together and we're doing some of the largest cases, you know, in the country, complicated, um, sophisticated, like, like, like very rewarding work at the high, at a very high level, you know, I had the largest verdict in the history of Washington state. I created a constitutional right in this state for when I was a, I was a public defender and they wanted to um, control crime by trespassing people in low income housing. And so I, I fought that and, and I fought for the the rights of the tenants to invite their family members over. And so I created a right, a constitutional right that we get, we have the right to hang out with our family, right? You can't just trespass someone and then say, you can never go see your family. Um, was George Clinton's lawyer, one of the largest copyright cases in the history of copyright. So these are some like radically diverse areas of law that have. I was going to ask you about the George one, but we'll hold that off a little bit later. Yeah, I mean, sure. I mean, it's, it's, I've got some good stories, but I, it's kind of, I don't know how or why this just, I fell into it. I didn't mm-hmm. want a lawyer. I, it found me. And I kind of have a story of like two kind of career paths, like the the pre-addiction kind of event and then the post-blossoming of my life and my career and the promises and, you know, things just kind of falling into place for me. Um, but I think... You, you, you know, you're going to have a point in your life where you where you make critical choices of what path do you follow. And and I was lucky because a lot of things fell into place for me at that right time. And I followed my heart. I've always done things because of a belief, not not because of money or recognition or um, my ego needing to be enhanced, but rather what do I need to do? that I feel good about that I believe in. And that's not, those aren't empty words, you know, I mean, that's, that's a real, you know, you take the path that has a heart 
Mm-hmm. And I think that if you do that and you do things for the right reasons, if, if just for today, I do the best I can do for me and what I should be doing for whatever task it might be. It could be washing the dishes. It could be showing up for my wife. It could be working on my client's case. But if I do what I'm supposed to do and worry about my part in that task and I do it in a way with integrity and and um, in a way that is just morally good, whatever happens after that is not my responsibility. I don't own anything except what I can control. And I think that philosophy with discipline and, and of course, you know, I, I was lucky to go to school and get an education. So I have a law degree, you know, and that automatically for better or for worse, you know, this, 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 the structure of our society that automatically gave me a boost. Um, you know, you know, I mean, it, it's, I'm, I'm just lucky. Like I, I work hard and grant, I put myself in a position to be lucky. Lucky yes. is what happens with, with hard work meets, you know, preparation, hard work meet luck. Yeah. That's, I don't, I, there's some weird saying about that. But at any point in time, as you, you well know, I, I should be dead. You know, I, sh- I could be disbarred, my reputation. I mean, holy cow. <laughs> I mean, there's no rhyme or reason to any of it. Yeah, I, I, there is something to be said for just doing the next right thing. You know, it really, really is. And, and I'll tell you every morning I say that serenity prayer, cause it works for me. I'm a 12 step guy. You told with 12 steps, kind of what yep. you still practice. Yeah. Yep. And you know, I just have to employ these certain principles to, I was listening to atomic habits, the book, and you know, it's just like, I, I have to, I have to look at things in a certain order. It's, it's how my brain is. Uh, otherwise I go mad. <laughs> and then when I go mad, I, you know, I disappear to the bar for the next 10, 12 hours. So, you know, yeah, yeah. Just got to keep it in order. Amen. The Knockin' Doors Down book shares all the history and inspiration behind the Carlos Vieira Foundation and how it all started. All proceeds from the book benefit the Carlos Vieira Foundation's Race to Be Drug-Free campaign. So what's that all about? Through the Race to Be Drug-Free campaign, Carlos Vieira Foundation raises awareness about drug abuse, donates to drug-free programs, and brings drug-free speakers into schools to educate youth. The Race to Be Drug-Free campaign's main program is the Gloves Not Drugs boxing program. This program is completely free for kids between the ages of 8 and 17 to learn discipline, strength, respect, camaraderie, and the art of boxing. The program was created to keep kids off the streets, out of gangs, and away from drugs. For more info and to get involved, check out carlosvierafoundation.org. If you're willing to talk about it, what what was kind of the the rock bottom breaking point where it was just you had to recognize it? Because I know you were abusing alcohol, uh, marijuana. I'm sorry, people are like, it's not addictive bullshit. It is. Uh, I, mean, I, I think that our suffering... Yeah, I mean, if you have to quantify your pain and suffering and measure it against something else, um, I guarantee you I do not measure up to people who right now are strung out on fentanyl and meth. Yeah. And, right, right. That's just not, not going to happen. Having said that, for me, my suffering was the worst suffering I've ever experienced. 
and it was intense and it was it was down i was downright um miserable i'd self-isolated um you know like an image of me just crawling in a corner and pulling a blanket over myself so that no one could see i i couldn't walk you know past a mirror and look at it mm-hmm. you know what i mean like i hated who i was and there were pretty pretty scary physical <laughs> you know I, I i don't know i mean it, it it sucked. It really sucked. And so I reached, so my point of what drew me out of, or, or kind of like, so I got to this point where I knew I was going to die. Okay. I knew I was going to die. If not physically, emotionally, psychologically, and any other kind of meaning and purpose that made life worth it. It was, it was, flickering right any kind of meaning or purpose as well as physical safety like i was physically sick and mentally like psychotic like I, the weed psychosis thing was real the the physical consequences of alcohol were real and i reached this point where i knew i was going to die one way or another and um i was i, I mean he had these moments in life that you can never forget. Right. And I was at a bar and it was kind of like at the tail end of, of, of like a bender. And I was with my girlfriend and she was passed out in the bar. You know, we kind of sink and rise to our own level. Right. So she's like passed out in the bar and it was this big high table and she slumped over it and it was dangerous. It was just dangerous. And I remember it was like an out-of-body experience. I mean, not to be cheesy or corny, but I remember looking down at myself in this scene in this life and saying, is this really who you are in the life you want to live? And the Army slogan, be all you can be, was running through my head. For some reason, just be all you can be, man. Like, live your life. And I was so disgusted. I kind of like scooped her up and, and got her to the car and drinking and driving means nothing to me. You know what I mean? Like, like I, when I got sober, I got in two or three car crashes. Oh God. Yeah. Like, 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 because I don't, I can't explain it, but they, they weren't like huge car crashes, but they were on the highway and I'm not, you know, like, like I got into to, to three car crashes sober and I drove if I was awake, I was stoned for a decade or more and, and drinking and driving. I've done four field sobriety tests. I'm in front of my kids and never got a crash hammered. Should have, could have had many close calls. So I scoop her up. I drive her to her place and I'm disgusted with everything about me, including her. And so I, I leave her, I just drop her off and I'm driving home. And I fall asleep as I'm driving home on an on an off exchange of an interstate and I jump the curb and I'm like, whoa, you know, I wake up and I get control of the car and I get it on track and I barely make it home with that adrenaline boost of like a shock. Wake up, hungover as I've ever been, you know, equivalent of however it's been for the last probably two years of just misery. My head is pounding, you know, my bowels aren't working. And I get out a piece of paper and I write down, I'm going to stop smoking weed. I'm going to start, I'm going to stop drinking. I'm going to start working. I'm going to be there for my kids. I'm going to be healthy. 
you know, I kind of came up with this list, you know, of what I need to do. And I'm done. I'm never going to smoke or drink again in my life. And I'm at the airport and I'm drinking again. Right. How many, how many different ways and, and methods and attempts have we made at quitting? <laughs> I got a lot. Eric. I got the I got the only hard alcohol on the weekends. No booze in the house, yeah. only when you go out. And if I could just smoke weed on the weekends or just I mean, I I would love that. I can't. If I have it, I'm gonna smoke it. And so I'm going to a place and we talked about the gratitude list and I'm going to see some people that really care about me, you know, really care about me. And they, they knew I was at this point really sick. And for lack of a better way of describing it, they kind of did an intervention. Mm. And, um, and there was an AA meeting that someone, you know, encouraged me to do. So I went to it. And there was the part of me that was open and willing and, and desperate crawl. By the time you're crawling into an AA room, by the way, the first AA meeting I went to, I was in my twenties. I was in law school. That's how, you know, that's how long I've been like, Ugh. Yeah. and this was this, I was 45 now. Okay. When I'm talking about this, I'm 52. So I go to the AA meeting I fly back to Seattle and the first thing I do before, you know, I'm getting my airplane mode off and I'm pulling out my phone. I'm like, I need to go to an AA meeting now. As soon as those wheels hit the ground, I get in my car, I go straight to an AA meeting in a city, you know, suburb of Seattle. And I just show up there afraid, embarrassed, you know, like not knowing what, what the hell I'm doing or why, except I need to be there. Something was telling me I need to be there. And I don't know, maybe six people are there. And in the grand scheme of, you know, I'm showing up in a nice car and, 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 you know, like nice shoes and, and they're riding a bike and, you know, kind of, you know, the clothes are torn and they're saying the most profound things that I couldn't believe, you know, like, like with kindness and understanding and, something happened in that moment where I was like, whoa, you know, like I, I, there's something, there's something here. So I go back to my city. It was called it was my home group, Gig Harbor. And I show up there and I got like, you got to find a group that works with you and fits. And you know what I mean? Like, like that's a big part of it is personalities. Mm -hmm. And I got a sponsor and I just threw myself, I, I needed to do it or I was going to die. And I, and, and, and so that is, that's how I did it. Yeah. It's amazing. Right. When we uh, start to, like you said, and you got to find the right group, but start to really connect with other people and that, that beauty of that vulnerability, because there's something about, you know, like what you were saying, you come in fancy car, fancy shoes, people torn clothes, bike, there's something about that equalizer of, oh, we're all a bunch of addicts wanting to stay clean for the rest of our lives. The ultimate goal, but at, at the very least today. Yeah. I wanted their life. I wanted what they had. I wanted their life, their peace, you know, their calm of, of how they were behaving themselves that I was incapable of doing. And there, you, you know, the, 
the 12 steps, any one of them individually is a profound truth that cannot be disputed. Mm. Right. I mean, it's just, there's no one can have any controversy with any single one of them. For me, what, what held me back was I associated it with organized religion that for me is kind of like a trigger because I don't, I don't get that, but I'm deeply spiritual. And there has to be an open of the addict of receiving some, like we don't know every, we don't know what we don't know. And when we close our mind off to possibilities, we limit our imagination. And what we know is that those 12 steps and behavioral scientists, you know, academics at Princeton, you know, behavioral science, you name it, the, the, the professionals who study psychology, psychiatry, emotion, feeling, addiction, the way the brain works, which is, by the way, a whole nother mystery. It's the only thing that consistently works. Yeah. Addictions. It's it. Yeah. Now, there are other things that will, will, will work for people and it works for a good chunk of people. But consistently over time, the 12 steps are the most powerful remedy for addiction. Yeah. It's because of these 12 truths that are strung together with the support of someone else. Yeah. That's the key. I was listening to, uh, um, it was Jordan Peterson, Dr. Jordan Peterson, actually, the other day. And he was uh, talking about, he goes, he goes, especially with alcoholics, but I'm seeing it now with a lot of the, a lot of other types of addiction that, and he was making reference to the 12 steps and he goes, and I'm seeing the most success with those that connect to the idea of a higher power. You know, and he clarifies, it doesn't have to be God. We're not talking organized religion here, but we're a part of something greater than ourselves. And for yeah. me, in in finding the God I do business for, as I say it, it got me out of my own way and looking at other people that I'm just simply a vessel here to to be of service. I don't know how else to put it. So with that said, I better take darn care of this one. Cause this is the only one I get at this yeah. time, as far as I know, but yeah. you know, uh, man, well said, you know, well said, because like, I don't matter. You mm-hmm. don't matter. Like, like our, 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 our existence to the world is that we are insignificant. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not going to make a difference. Biden's not going to make a difference. Trump's not going to make it like, like individually, like, our ego tells us we matter. Our self-inflated like importance tells us that we are very important and everyone's taking stock and notice of what we do. But the truth is, is like very few people really care. Yeah. Like deeply, you know what I mean? Like really care about you. And I'm not sure where I'm going with this point, except that when you can let go of the idea that you are important, that you do matter, that you are, when you can let go of that and just be okay with this vessel, who I am right now, and I'm okay with just me, that's all that matters is that I'm here going back to me being the best I can be. As long as I'm doing that, then, you you know, that's what matters. That's what's important. No, that makes sense. And I think if we're in that mindset, we we can matter in ways that we may not understand, you know, as simple as uh, 
I must be, maybe it's a look on my face or something. I'm at the store the other day and it was odd because this is the first time someone has done this to me, but I was challenged by a gentleman that I'm not sure if you've ever heard of Dr. Rob Kelly, neuropsychologist, addict in recovery. And he said, Hey, I'm going to challenge you. I want you over the you know next couple of weeks, at least 10 people, you're going to compliment them on their shoes. And so I was doing that and it was that exchange of dopamine. I go, Hey man, cool kicks. And I look down and then look back and smile at you. And it happened to me for the first time in reverse the other day. And I was like, I'll be damned. That <laughs> does work. And it can be just that simple. The holding a door for someone um, or telling them, thank you. If they hold the door, you know, it's a lot of these, I think just doing and being, you know, good to other people. And in turn, that's us being good to ourselves. I love it. That is exactly it's, it's, it, that overture of kindness, like there's this bumper sticker, do the next random act of kindness. And if you live, so you were asking earlier about how did I get successful or whatever? It's this, man, I give everyone the benefit of the doubt. Mm. Like I, I, I truly believe that you're going to be kind and you're going to do the right thing. And, um, and I'd like to reciprocate that and do it for you. And it is, there is a level of vulnerability on that because the reality is, is I grew up in a scary home oh. where the people that I needed to protect me the most were, were violent and were aggressive and, and abusive. And that's some, and so, and so my relationship with anger and trust is really dysfunctional. And so the irony is, is with strangers, I can be really trusting and let my guard down and assume that there's going to be nothing but kindness and, and sincerity coming back. But with people that are close to me, I don't know how to love because I'm afraid you're going to screw me over. Wow. I can't trust you because it's too scary. You gave me the take. I, yeah. I think you and I could be a psychologist's uh, dream <laughs> analyst. I suffer from the same thing because I went through some sexual abuse and and um, exposure to hardcore pornography when I was at a very young age, you know. And so I, I've only in the last couple of years started to realize how much that led me to where I was. And essentially, I was an addict long before I was an addict is how I can coin it. Well, first of all, the bravery that you just exhibited, and it's clear that you've been working on these issues for a very, very long time, and you have an inner strength and power that is special. And so while you're lack, while you struggle to find imagination, you're you're inspiring others people's imaginations through your actions. But it's not normal for people to be able to so freely talk about such devastating, embarrassing victim is you name it. Sure. So you have clearly done a lot of work to come to peace with that. And here's the, here's the thing, man, the things that we cannot talk about are controlling us. Mm. The things, right. You're as sick as your secrets. That's another way of saying it. And until we as a society are willing to accept people who are willing to share their failures and their flaws and the things that shame us. Why is it so hard to say that? Why should it be hard to say that as a little child, I was victimized? Yeah. It shouldn't be. But we live in a world where we are afraid that we will be judged and rejected because we tell people who we are. So we put up a shield of bullshit that frankly leads to addiction. Yeah. 
Oh yeah, I people have asked me and many others I talked to what is it, 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 you know gateway drug I, I, trauma. Try that out. Yeah, yeah, try, yeah, yeah. Yeah, try to try to find one of us in a room, uh, a twelve step meeting. There is some sort of trauma sitting there. I mean, and thank you, a for the compliment. I appreciate that very much. And b for your vulnerability. That's tough to say. I grew up in a home of physical abuse, and I didn't feel safe. I mean, what? I mean, that's what it is. So many of us, we just never felt safe. Never had a sense of home. Period. Yeah. I don't even think I felt. Uh, I remember saying this to my to my partner. I said to her, and this is probably about a year and a half ago. This is the first time in my life I've ever felt like I've had a home at forty four years of age. Ooh. Well, I'm. You know what? I'm happy that you are like settling into one. Yeah. I mean, that's huge. Right? Likewise. That's a, yeah. Thank you. It, it, it is. I mean, man, it's, I, I owe so much to my journey and the 12 steps in that process. I just, my gratitude for that is that's what I should have started out with. You know, uh, what am I grateful for? It is a, you know, when you get in a good run of sobriety, maybe you take it for granted. Maybe that's when you should be scared, right? Because <laughs> I think it crossed my mind. I should be grateful for my sobriety. <laughs> hey, Eric, uh, uh, two years and uh, uh, four months ago, uh, or excuse me, 26 months ago, two years and two months ago, I relapsed because I had that mindset. I took it for granted. Oops. I became a dry drunk, you know? And it was just that easy. I, all I needed was the right excuse to play the victim as an adult and not accept that all that was going on, I played a part in. And a lot of it was my choices, you know? Yeah. So let me ask you, Geese, you brought up your daughter. How did you, how, how have you done the work? If you don't mind sharing, I think some others would get a value of. I've heard so many people I've had to do work with my kids of rebuilding that bond and trust with them. Well, first of all, let's be really clear that I got a long way to go. I mean, mm. that so much damage was done. Um, but I think you have to keep showing up and being available when they want you to be there. Because I, I have hurt them in ways I never could have imagined, right? And they don't know that I was whacked out, not capable of showing up for them. I mean, I was, right, when you're... So a recognition, a ninth step of working your way to a, a recognition of, I am so sorry for my part and I wish I could have been better. You know, I wish I could have been a better dad. I wish I could have been a better husband. I wish I could have been a better person and not have hurt you so much. Like a good, honest apology of owning your part goes a really long way. But that's just... I mean, that's, that doesn't, what I hear is, well, that's just too easy to say. You know what I mean? Like, like, I don't, I need more from you on that. And, and I think that when it doesn't happen instantly, you have to have faith that over time it will come and just keep showing up because I'm not there by any means at all. Like it's, you know, some of these, some of my, one of my, it's bad. It, it's not, 
It's not what I would hope it to be, but you know what? I have a relationship mm. and, we're, and we're both working on it and we both want it to be there. What kid doesn't want to have a dad? Yeah. What dad doesn't want to be a good, a good parent or mom? And so it's a relationship that by nature we have to have. It's, it's how to let go of being the parent and maybe just like a good stew, giving it time to come together on its own and not force it. I, I don't, I don't have the answer, man, because I, at all, I'm in counseling with like multiple, like I, I, I'm in a lot of counseling for this very reason. Sure. Like, like what it's, it, yeah. No, I commend you on, on a, except knowing that you need that kind of help for that very reason. And it, it's tough. I mean, I still have some struggles more so with my oldest than my youngest. So thank you for that vulnerability. I appreciate that because yeah, it can be an, a, an SOB some days, you know? And, and, you know, the memories of, I mean, think of what our parents did to us. And then for me, I, I vowed I would be the greatest parent ever because I'm not going to do what my parents did. Mm -hmm. And I only did something different that was just as bad. And other people, you know, are motivated to be, you know, like their parents, you know, and I, I don't know if I'd want to grow up in that family because I think struggling and, and having to overcome failure and, and rejection and disappointment is a big part of, tapping into our ultimate potential. If you always go through life and nothing is hard and everything's given to you, I'm not sure that's the life I would want. I agree. You know, it, but it's, it, but it's having that perseverance and perspective when you're down and out. Uh, I mean, look, we all have it. We all have a purpose. And so no matter how low we are, we want to live. And when we don't, it's really important that there's a part of us that needs to die, but but we don't need to, I don't need to die. Suicide is a big deal. Yeah. Right. And there is a part of all of us that does need to die, but we don't need to die. And sometimes we lose sight of that perspective. And yeah. that that's a scary thing. That's a really scary thing. It's interesting that you you bring that up because I was got a mentor pushing me, you know, hey, write more. Actually thinks I should write a book. Um, so we'll see. But uh, I was actually writing about that very thing that that a part of me, like mourning that part of me that I had to let die. It needed to go away. I needed to not be the fun guy at the bar and closing it down and, you know, whatever other chaos that came along with it, because it was a lot of chaos. Sure, there was fun at first, but a lot of chaos. And I and it was, you know, really a recognition of, yeah, you know, let that go. That's that's gone. Did you ever even really like it? Well, I don't think I did. Even the, for the, the minimal parts I remember. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> uh. Let me ask you about just mindset you're living now. Just, um, I mean, I would look at you as a high achiever. I don't know how you see yourself, but I'm, I'm curious about mindset. Um, what do you mean? So, I mean, these are stressful things that you deal with. If best way I heard it put, uh, 
if you end up in a court, it's never for a good reason, you know? Yeah. So you're dealing with these situations. Maybe that let's take the, to me, outwardly fun, George Clinton's uh, uh, copyright lawsuit. But there is so much you've got to tear through to try yeah. to be able to maintain your well-being and at the same time, put this stuff together, a solid case, combat whatever's coming your direction. I mean, it's, to me, it's like, wow, what a, a mind screw that is. Yeah. Um, it's really hard because the burden of representing someone and being responsible for their life, if you care, is heartbreaking when it, because it's this the the system is really unfair. I mean, I mean, like vicious and cruel and ruthless, and it's so subjective by a decision of an individual, be it a judge or a prosecutor or an insurance adjuster or you, you know what I mean. Like, like there's no, it's there's it's really subjective and it's really cruel and it doesn't work all the time, mm. and. You know, there's a repeating theme at this point because a lot of lawyers either don't really have the skill or the knowledge to do what they do. Mm. I mean, it's scary, but it's true. And part of being a lawyer is having good people skills. Part of being a lawyer is having the discipline and intellect to plow through, you know, thousands of pages and put together the case in a legal way that is going to have feet and stand and together in court. And then a really important part, it's a constitutional right of our clients is the right to a jury trial. And so you might have someone who's really good at the books and understands the law, but when it comes to public speaking, they start sweating and pee their pants. I'm not joking, right? These are physiological responses to fear and public speaking is one of the, is, is the single greatest fear we have over our own death. Right. And, and so um, I always found that ironic. Like, well, you know why? It's because we're 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 going to get embarrassed. Yeah, Our ego can't stand losing or 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 looking stupid. Like when you fall, you could break your wrist and be like, "Oh, I'm okay," you know, and kind of slink off to the privacy so that no one knows that you just got hurt. <laughs> yeah, but so my my mindset has has always been. to to make sure that I'm not like I need to be there for my clients. I need to do what's right for them. And it and it and those lines are pretty mysterious at times. Hmm. Because well because I mean you can really never do enough. Right. Like, like to to help people you can never do enough to help someone. Sometimes my personal interest I want to go on a vacation but my client has a trial coming up or I could settle the case and get a significant amount of money. Or I could push it, spend more money, and get even more money, but I have to be willing to lose the time and the money that I could just immediately get. And all of a sudden, I'm making decisions that are selfish to me, right. as opposed to what's in the best interest of my client. Or I'm too busy with other things, or I have too many cases. And so my mindset has always kind of been that, man, this is a great honor and a responsibility, and I don't want to betray that. And I don't want to. I don't want to do more than I can personally handle. And so I don't do a lot of cases because I don't. I'd rather have time than money. 
I'd rather, I'd rather be able to live with myself than live in a nice house. And, and, and so my priorities have always been, even before, you, you, you know, some of the nine steps or the clients, right, of I wasn't competent. That is the exception to what I'm talking about. And that's a, that's a heavy, that's some heavy, like, weight that I carry. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but you got some tools and I, to carry that burden, my friend. I do. And I mean, I'm not alone and, and, you know, we're not perfect. Yeah. We have to be, we have to be able to live with ourselves. We can't beat ourselves. We can't be our own worst critic 24 seven. You know what I mean? Like that's a trap that a lot of us fall into. Oh yeah. We have have to be able to forgive ourselves and, and, and accept that we're going to make mistakes. And when it happens, grow from it, not wallow in it. Yeah. I mean, it goes all the way back to childhood. We, we, we're learning to walk, we fall on our butt and then eventually we're there. We are running around. And if you're like me, you crack your head open on the coffee table and then you learn not to do that again. I mean, you know, (laughs) and I mean, I I, I had someone put it really great to me, Eric. They said, um, I suffer more with self-deprecation than the inflated ego of like, I'm the greatest in the world. It's, you know, I do a little more of the, I'm the worst person. And he's like, no, you're a dick. And I go, what? And he goes, to yourself. And you're egotistical. And I go, no, I'm not like saying I'm great. He's like, no, it, it's same coin, opposite sides. For you to sit and someone to say they're the greatest in the world or the worst in the world, it's both false. So, and would you talk to someone else that way? No. Then why do you talk to yourself that way? That's a good, that's a good test. If you wouldn't say it to someone else, why do you say it to yourself? Yeah, exactly. Goodness gracious. Hey, we could go on and on all day. I know we, we're set for about yeah. an hour. You want to have some fun? Always. All right. We're going to jump into some random questions. All right. And then I'm going right. to ask you for some final thoughts here. 5150 is a lifestyle. We believe in pushing yourself, finding your passion, knowing your dreams and working hard, and always striving to make those dreams your reality. We believe life is too short to sit back and say, what if? Go after it, grab it, and make it happen. Being 5150 is committing to that long, hard road. That road you know is going to be tough, but the most rewarding. That's living the madness. That's 5150. If you're living the 5150 lifestyle, then celebrate by rocking the goods. So listen up. There's a special deal for listeners of Knocking Doors Down. Go to 5150LTM.com and enter code KDD20 and receive 20% off your purchase. That's 51FIFTYLTM.com. Pet peeves. Something that just irks you. You know what's what's coming up over and over and over again is like dishonesty. You know, in the face of truth that you just can't own something either about yourself or people that are around you. So lack of sincerity. Mm. Yeah. It's disheartening. Yeah. I, I mean it it's just I I I I have a real problem with that. Yeah. For for me, it just tells me that there's in a one way kind of a favor like but there's absolutely no way I can connect with you in any way shape or form whatsoever. So yeah. it saddens me, but you've also done me a favor at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Those things that suck. All right. Uh what was the last song you listened to on purpose? 
All right, this morning um, coming in, um, it wasn't a song in particular, but it was a Neil Young, Ragged Glory, kind of grungy rock and roll, heavy guitar. And it was kind of home. Nice. I love it. I, I, I too, am a fan of, uh, of Neil Young. My, my daughter, however, not so much. Like I got this playlist every time rocking in the free world comes on. Can you change it? It's like, all right, whatever. <laughs> but this is an important song, my child. Listen to what he's yes. saying in the lyrics. You know, <laughs> don't you get it? <laughs> no, yeah. could care less. Uh, if you could have one superpower, what would it be? To infect the world with compassion. Oh, that's a new one. <laughs> I, I think that speaks for itself. Normally it followed up with why, but that's pretty cut and dry. I've never heard that. That's wow. I'm a little moved. Um, <clears throat> All right. Let me collect myself. <laughs> uh, here's a fun one. Um, at least I like this one. If you could have dinner with any one person living or not, who would they be? Wow, you know, two people came up to mind, Abraham Lincoln and my dad. Hmm. Lincoln, um, man, in the face of such horror and crises, you know, to stand so strong on principle and, and just rooted in a sense of, you know, what's right and just. And then, of course, my dad, because he um, alluded to some of the issues I have and, you know, he's no longer with us. And um, I think it's really important to forgive, mm. you know, and to live in a positive place. If you're stuck on a deserted island, you had one movie and one music artist's greatest hits. What are they? Dude, that would drive me nuts. <laughs> hey, both the movie and the song within a week or two because that's all i would listen to or watch you know what if i was stuck I, I i let's see here one i would have the sound of the waves okay and feel of the sand and the sun and i would try to focus on that but i would say uh, from my earliest earliest days i love queen nice. um as far as movies go i'm not a big movie person um Probably one that I don't really know, but everyone tells me I need to see one flew over the cuckoo's nest because I'd never, I like, I saw it and I know what it's about, but that's a movie that I could probably sit and watch a few times. Uh, you know, Eric, I was really enjoying you as a person, but uh, I don't know now. That, that's one of my favorite movies of all time. <laughs> I'm giving you shit, of course, but uh uh, yeah, I think it's I for me Jack Nicholson's best role. So many brilliant people in there: Christopher Lloyd, Danny DeVito, um, and and just what it's trying to say uh, to me. Just beautiful. Plus, for my senior project, I was acting for the camera. I did do a scene from that movie, so no goes way. to show. Yeah, yeah, I did the I did the intake scene, which if you watch that one, it's. Uh, pretty damn amusing stuff in there i didn't pull it off as well as jack and in, in retrospect uh, all right. uh but it was a fun one you haven't written a book about yourself yet right no ever pondering it um you know it's it's i'm actually yes i have good more than just pondered it uh, there's pen to paper and um there's a lot of uh ideas and thoughts that i have 
Good. Well, we need to keep in touch because you do that. I'm going to read it for sure. Uh, but here's how it helps the next question. If a movie was made about your life, who would you want to play you? And what genre do you think it would be? Come on, man. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I struggle with this because, but it's hard to take compliments sometimes. And the very fact that question implies that there should be a movie about me. Whether that someone should want to understand my role and who I am and play it. And what would that story be? Um, I did learn how to accept a compliment when I got sober. Prior to that, I like, oh, you know, like I didn't deserve it. I did. I was unworthy. Um, so that question is kind of hard for me. But I would say that for some reason, Canu Reeves, I've always felt like this something about him that I kind of connected with. And there is a side of me that is like, I have a killer in me and that's like, I'm very peaceful. I, 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 everything I start out with is I was talking about it before, but there is a side of me. You can't just go into court and do what I do unless there's that piece of you that is willing to die. Mm -hmm. Like the sacrifices that you will make to go in and win. I, I have that piece to me. And I think that that's a that's a part of the complexity of of the humans, right? We we have these infinite capacities of, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, oh, I know what you I know what you mean. Uh, I have C Vice Passum Parabellum tattooed all over the big on my back. So you know, we pray yeah. for peace, prepare for war. So I know what you mean. Uh, yeah. Eric, do you got time to leave us with some final thoughts? Just anything you want to lend? Maybe someone that's struggling themselves, a family member, or just some knowledge? And, um, you know, I'm struggling because I think there's messages that really need to be heard and said and received. And I, I guess I would, I would say that, you know, if we are struggling in a world and a place and a mind that isn't coming together, making sense, that is struggling, that is hard, is it is to sit with it and to be okay with it and to know that you're not alone and to, and it will move through you. But you have to you have to be willing to to suffer in that and accept it because the day is long the years will change and you will, we grow through these things. And, but in that moment when it just doesn't seem like it's possible, just sit with that and be okay with it because it will change. This is the Knocking Doors Down podcast featuring celebrities, experts, and everyday people who have overcome adversities, including addiction, mental health, and trauma to live purposeful lives. And that's what Knocking Doors Down is all about.